Welcome to the Zoo Taxi Podcast, a series of conversations that center a unique LGBTQA voice in such areas as science, religion, culture, poetry, and current events. My name is Don Stouter, and I'll be your host for these explorations and sermons and editorials and essays. For the record, the name Zoo Taxi comes from a license plate I saw one day driving through the California high desert. I hope you'll consider supporting this podcast with a contribution, which you can make by going to anchor.fm slash zootaxi. Just by way of context, I'm a writer and photographer and a healthcare chaplain, having worked in healthcare for nearly 45 years, first as an EMT medic and then as a hospital chaplain. I'm also a researcher and theologian and social scientist in areas like bioethics, and one of the reasons for producing this podcast is to give me an opportunity to start conversations around the many things that interest me and about the uniqueness of my experience in these various roles, as well as to center the LGBTQA experience throughout these little explorations. So that's my short story. I hope you'll take the opportunity to tell me your story by leaving me a voice message at anchor.fm slash zootaxi. As long as you don't use dirty words, I promise I'll put you on the air. For more on me personally, you can check out my website at Donald Stouder, D-O-N-A-L-D-S-T-O-U-D-E-R, all one word, donaldstouder.com. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Don Stouder, and this is the Zoo Taxi Podcast, broadcasting on the Anchor Uh, podcast network and today is let's see June the 5th 2020 and I'm continuing to work on catching up with some podcasts that I've been wanting to do and uh, uh, today I want to share a sermon that uh, I've given a couple of times it's one of my favorites actually I talked about my time working in the field of organ donation I spent about 10 years as a chaplain and a hospital development manager and an educator working for uh, an organization called Life Sharing in San Diego. So I did a lot of uh, uh, working with organ donor families. I approached a lot of families to ask about organ donation in some very difficult times of their lives. And I did a lot of in-services on the subject for hospital staff and uh, public groups and even did uh, uh, some teaching at uh, uh, San Diego State and the University of San Diego and and at UCSD. So it was a really important part of my life and 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 this sermon I want to share today sort of uh, uh, highlights what was so special about that time. Um, I started by wanting to tell uh, folks about my unique ministry as a healthcare chaplain and crisis counselor in the organ donation field, and I wanted to tell them about some heroes that I have met along the way. Uh, uh, As a part of this little chat, we also talked about uh, a journey through the fields of science and medical ethics and the humanities, a little world religion, maybe even a little pop psychology. And I joked that if the sermon were a little longer, people could get college credit for it. Uh, But the truth is the quiet struggle of those who wait for organ transplants And the not-so-quiet public debate about how best to provide those organs continues. And I thought made it worthy of a subject of close consideration in religious communities. I was ordained to the ministry in 1993 after almost 20 years as an EMT paramedic and an EMS educator. 
I made that career change after having worked as a volunteer at makeshift hospice houses in the early days of AIDS. I became a minister specifically to be a chaplain, and I felt strongly called to be of help to people in crisis. After I completed the requirements for ordination and a year-long internship residency at one of San Diego's trauma centers, I was hired as the Director of Spiritual Care at Sharp Grossmont Hospital in San Diego's East County, a position I held for just over 10 years. It was a great experience and one of the highlights of my career, but after 10 years of being on call 24-7 for traumas and other tragic events, in addition to the full-time day job of being a chaplain, I decided I needed a little sabbatical. Now most ministers I know go off on retreat or write a book, but I decided to sink my entire net worth into a dream of owning a coffee house bookstore. The store was actually fun and did a little better than break even, but in my heart of hearts I knew it was just a vacation from the ministry, and soon the call to return got louder and I sold the store. I did this without a real plan of what to do next, mind you, thinking maybe I could pick up a little per diem work as a chaplain here and there. <clears throat> One day, as I was feeling particularly sorry for myself and my poor decision-making, the phone rang. It was Lisa Stocks, the Executive Director of Life Sharing Community Organ and Tissue Donation, an organization that I had done a lot of projects with when I was at Sharp Grossmont. Life Sharing is affiliated with UCSD and is the federally designated organ procurement organization, or OPO, for San Diego and Imperial Counties. The director asked me if I'd be interested in developing a chaplain position within their family services, uh, family services department, which at the time had all of one employee. We met and decided on a part-time schedule, which turned full-time about two weeks after the job started. I ended up staying in that position for another 10 years, and then retiring from UCSD before moving to the Palm Springs area where I live now. I helped out at the chaplain programs at Desert Regional and Eisenhower Medical Centers. My primary role as an organ donation chaplain was to respond to any hospital in our service area any time of the day or night and talk to families who had suffered a terrible tragedy about making their loved one an organ donor as well as provide them with crisis counseling along with spiritual and emotional support. I also did lots of public speaking, some staff development for the employees, education for healthcare professionals, some writing and research, and other various projects. But everything came to a halt when the pager went off, and a hospital somewhere in our service area told us that they had a patient who was a potential donor. So let's leave it there for a second and uh, take a break. You're listening to the uh, Zoo Taxi podcast on the Anchor Podcasting Network. Welcome back to the show. We're talking about uh, uh, some time I spent uh, in my career as an organ donation chaplain. <clears throat> I'd like you to imagine for a moment the site of a large football stadium, perhaps during the Super Bowl, completely filled to capacity. For many stadiums, that could be around 100,000 people. Now think of that stadium as the waiting room for people who need an organ transplant in the United States. 
There are about 120,000 people currently on the waiting list for a heart, lung, liver, or kidney transplant. And nearly 30,000 of those people live in the state of California. Only about 8,000 people become organ donors across the U.S. in any given year, along with about six or 7,000 living persons who donate a kidney. And today and tomorrow and the next day, about 20 people, men and women, girls and boys, even some infants, will die while they are waiting for a transplant. In one of their best years ever, San Diego only had about 120 donors in the San Diego area. So you see the gap between those people who need a transplant and the number of, the, of available organs it is huge. It seemed like we had our work cut out for us. Shortly after I was hired at LifeSharing, we hosted an educational conference for San Diego area nurses about organ donation. Right before lunch, we saw a video about a Los Angeles County firefighter who had hepatitis and needed a liver transplant. The video chronicled his difficult journey and the number of times he nearly died, as well as the number of times he was called to come to the hospital because they had found a liver for him, only to discover that it wasn't a match. At the end of the video, he was a broken and very sick man and he had essentially given up. He said goodbye to his wife and young daughter and was preparing himself to die. On that somewhat sad note, we dismissed the group to lunch. During the salad course, a speaker came to the podium. She mentioned the man in the video and then asked the crowd, would you like to meet him? Of course, the crowd said yes, and in jogged a strapping, healthy Los Angeles County firefighter with a beaming smile on his face. To a standing ovation, Brian Hensley took the microphone and like a preacher at a revival, told his story of finally getting a liver and becoming the first firefighter in the nation to return to work after getting a liver transplant. He was a little tired since he had driven down from LA after a long work shift, but he lit a fire within all of us who attended the conference, thanking, for, thanking us all for what we do in healthcare to make organ donation possible. As I was watching Brian's grand entrance unfold, I couldn't help thinking about our six Unitarian Universal, uh, Universalist principle, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. I know that when this principle was adopted, it was meant to call our attention to our relationship with the natural world around us. But as Brian told his story, he repeatedly called us his heroes. And I realized just how many people it takes to make an organ transplant successful. To the organ recipients, we truly are heroes because we've, because we've given them a second chance to live a normal life. That interdependent web includes the families of donors who even in their grief agree to donation. It includes people like me and my former colleagues who make that gift possible. It includes nurses and doctors who care for the donor, surgeons and technicians who perform the transplant, the huge medical teams that care for the recipients, even pilots who fly the organs from one region to another. Sometimes these heroes even, gives their lives for, even give their lives for this work, as did a transplant team from Wisconsin whose jet crashed as they were rushing organs to a waiting patient just last year. So many people all trained and ready to play an important part of an amazing life-giving dance. 
it truly does define the word miracle. As you can probably imagine, the field of organ donation and transplantation is a minefield of logistical challenges, ethical dilemmas, scientific exploration and discovery, even miscommunication and myths. As science goes, the field is not very old. Although kidneys have been transplanted earlier, the first heart transplant was in December of 1967. At about the same time as that transplant, the modern definitions of brain death were just being developed. These definitions became important as medical science was able to keep people alive longer and longer on machines, and we, need to, and we needed to expand the moral and legal definitions of when a person was actually dead. Today, we accept two definitions of when someone is dead in the Western world. Those are when your heart stops beating or when your whole brain ceases to function. Now, this is not a subjective judgment, as many people think. There are clear clinical signs when a brain has stopped functioning and clear radiological, radiological tests, such as a cerebral brain flow study, that demonstrate when a brain has died. <clears throat> this is not a coma or a persistent vegetative state. This is death. We'll be right back. You're listening to the... Zoo Taxi podcast on the Anchor Podcast Network. And once again, welcome back to the show. We're talking about uh, organ donation, and <clears throat> and we just left off with uh, the definition of brain death and uh, where that played into the whole history of the field of organ transplantation. As it turns out, this new definition of death was also a boost to the field of organ transplantation because if a person is legally brain dead, they can have organs procured without a lengthy interruption of their heartbeat, which allows for oxygen sensitive organs like the heart and lungs to be procured for transplant. Some medical historians would argue that the definition of brain death was actually nothing more than a social construct to make people eligible to be organ donors. While there is some evidence that these historians are correct, it remains that when a person is completely brain dead, they cannot function on any level and will never ever recover. Medical science had to define when a person had died, or we might have a world filled with facilities like the ones in the 1979 movie Coma that maintain the bodies of the brain dead. With the exception of just a few religious faiths like Hasidic Judaism or Shinto in Japan that do not recognize death apart from the cessation of heartbeat, death by neurological criteria has become a worldwide standard. From an ethical perspective, organ transplantation has three general areas of concern. The first, as I just spoke of, is deciding when human beings are dead. The second is deciding when it is ethical to procure organs, and the third is deciding how to allocate organs once they're procured. While our clinical practice is fairly well developed in these areas, the debate about them is far from settled, be it in politics or religion or law or popular culture. Let me just give you a few, a few interesting examples in the form of questions. Who gets to decide who should get a particular organ and in what order? 
Should the 56-year-old recovering alcoholic get a liver before the 18-year-old cheerleader who was born with liver dysfunction? That question gets decided objectively based on need and match. If a person shoots another person in the head and the victim becomes brain dead but not cardiac dead, can the fact that the victim was made an organ donor be used as a reasonable homicide defense? While many lawyers have tried, arguing that the act of life support withdrawal to become a donor is what killed the victim, not the gunshot. All of those attempts, thankfully, have failed. Should a Hasidic Jewish family be allowed to keep their loved one on a ventilator long after they've been declared brain dead at government expense, as long as they like because of their religious beliefs? In the states of New York and New Jersey, the answer is yes. Should powerful political forces, like the Right to Life movement, have standing in court to challenge the care decisions of families, as was attempted in the famous Terry Schiavo case several years ago? In her case, in court, the answer was no. That has not always been the answer and completely depends on what part of the nation you're in. If your same-sex registered domestic partner or spouse wants to honor your wishes to be an organ donor, but your biological family says no, who should get to decide? That was one of the many reasons why the fight for same-sex marriage was so important. What if you want to be a donor and it says so on your driver's license, but when I go talk to your family, they say no? That's a tough one. We want to honor your wish, but we know how much the cause of organ donation would be harmed if your family runs off and tells Fox News or 60 Minutes how we took your organs without their permission, as has happened in Pittsburgh and elsewhere. Then there are the many myths that still linger about organ donation. Some people think that if you have a donor dot in your driver's license, a hospital will not try as hard to save your life so that you can be an organ donor. That is both silly and not true. Some people think that organs will be sold for profit or will only be given to rich white people. That would be a federal felony and is also not true. Some people think their religion prohibits organ donation and that is almost always not true. Organ donation and transplantation is a pretty complicated affair. I haven't even talked about the biological process of brain death and how it makes such patients very difficult to medically manage, or even what a challenge it can be to find recipients for certain kinds of donors that carry increased risk. What I can tell you is that I have never in my life worked with a smarter, more compassionate, and more dedicated group of people who were able to come to work every day ready to meet each and every one of these challenges with just one goal in mind, to save someone's life. When we did our job right, a single donor could save the lives of up to eight people and improve the lives of up to 50 more through tissue and cornea donation. I like to tell my coworkers when they were feeling low that the job they did was the moral equivalent of running into a burning building and rescuing eight people. I was honored beyond words to be able to work with these fine professionals. I'll be right back. This is Zoo Taxi on the Anchor Podcast Network. And welcome back to the show. Uh, I'm sharing a sermon that I've given a couple of times uh, about the time I spent in the uh, organ donation and transplant field. 
I began this sermon by promising to tell some stories and highlight some heroes. Sometimes the heroes are not who you expect them to be. I remember the case of a young Marine who was just back from his second tour of duty in Iraq. While he had survived the war, he couldn't survive the truck that hit him while he was riding his bicycle in the San Diego backcountry. His wife was difficult to find because she too was on a bicycle trip, but in Mexico. She was finally located and rushed to the hospital from the border by the CHP. I arrived with a nurse coordinator about five minutes before she did, and right about the time she hit the door, her husband's heart stopped. She loudly insisted that the hospital staff try to resuscitate him, but they said there was little hope. And then this little woman who happened to be a healthcare worker said, no, you don't get it. I want him resuscitated so he can be an organ donor. It's what he would want. That Marine went on to donate his heart, lungs, kidneys, and liver in the greatest act of bravery of his young life. For years, his wife stayed in touch and said thanks to us so many more times than we could thank, say thank you to her. I know that the act of making her husband an organ donor helped her to heal. It helps many families to heal in sometimes amazing ways. On two different occasions, I've sat across from a grieving mother about to bury a son not for the first time, but for the second or third time because of gang violence. I can't make sense of a tragedy like that, but these mothers did by making their sons an organ donor in each instance. I can't even imagine the kind of courage it takes to do that. I found that for many of the families I worked with, it is an act of faith to make their loved one an organ donor. I have to say that I'm both impressed and proud of the theological depth that many religious traditions have given to the field of organ donation and transplantation. Since the 60s, many religious traditions have wrestled uh, deeply with issues like defining death and their notions of desecrating a corpse to the biblical notions of stewardship of resources and the injunction to love one another as yourself. I've seen entire sermons about organ, about organ donation written around Luke 12, 48. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. We are blessed and so should share our blessings with others. Jewish and Christian writings are filled with the themes of helping others, loving others, and stepping outside of oneself in the service of others. I think of the comforting poetry of Ecclesiastes, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. I think of the compassion of the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel of Luke, a stranger, even an enemy, saving the life of his neighbor. At the end of his story, Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. And finally, I think of the call to justice and stewardship in the book of Isaiah. If you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness. Even those who study the writings of other world religions agree that there are generally no prohibitions about organ donation. Where resistance exists, it usually is related to a cultural practice or is a general uh, a, a generational issue. 
with older members of the family supporting more traditional beliefs and practices. As I mentioned earlier, it can also be related to definitions of death or ancient fears about what happens to the body after death. This is true for some Buddhists, some Muslims, and some Native Americans. But again, even in these religions, there are no broad prohibitions against donation. And indeed, members of all of these groups have become organ donors. Unitarian Universalists are not bound by any one set of doctrinal beliefs, yet we continually seek new ways of describing the heart of our faith, that center towards which we're all being drawn. You use have been at the forefront of dramatic efforts to preserve life and enhance the quality of life for all people, and such efforts are an enduring part of our values and traditions. Let's take a break again. This is the Zoo Taxi Podcast, and we're on the Anchor Podcast Network. Welcome back to the show. I was just starting to talk about the role that Unitarian Universalists have uh, have historically uh, uh, played in some dramatic efforts to preserve life and enhance quality of life for all people. During the Civil War, a number of Universalists, including Red Cross founder Clara Barton, went to work caring for the wounded. Unitarians like Samuel Howe, a crusader on behalf of blind persons, and Dorothea Dix, who launched major reforms in the care of people with mental illness, lived out their belief that all people are capable of infinite improvements and deserve the best treatment available. As a theme for this sermon, I could just as easily have focused on the first of our Unitarian Universalist principles that calls us to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. By becoming an organ and tissue donor, we each have an opportunity to extend or improve the life of another, perhaps a number of others, beyond the span of our lifetime. Because of our reverence for life, many Unitarian Universalists probably believe in organ and tissue donation, but discussing this issue with our immediate families may be lost somewhere on a very long list of good things to do. Well, today I mean to make that a little easier for you. There are three good ways to make your wishes known quickly and easily. The first is to visit a website when you have the opportunity called DonateLifeCalifornia.org and click on the link to register as a donor. If you live in another state, there are links you can look up um, uh, on the web that will give you the proper uh, address to go to. There's some six million people probably up to 7 million by now, already registered in the state of California's donor registry, and you can add your name with a few simple clicks. You can also add your name to the registry when you renew your driver's license. The third way is perhaps the most important of all, and that is to tell someone close to you what your wishes are. That simple act could help save lives, as we have seen so many times. Just tell someone what you want. A few years ago, a man named Morgan, a popular high school basketball coach, needed a liver to survive. His life was saved by Rochelle McCoy, a 33-year-old mother of two who died suddenly of a brain aneurysm. The family of this young, healthy woman might never have known of Rochelle's wishes if it hadn't been for a casual conversation one evening 
after her husband Ray renewed his driver's license. He had decided to become a donor and later mentioned it to his wife when her parents happened to be with them. Rochelle said she would become a donor the next time she renewed her license, but she never got the chance. Fortunately, her family remembered that conversation, and her gift of life saved Morgan and saved or helped six other people. Ray and Rochelle's two children have met Morgan and one other recipient already, and Ray wants them to meet the other five as well. He says it's proof of how wonderful their mother was to give up something of herself to benefit other people. A part of her is still alive, and they all know that. Stories like this affirm my faith in the basic human desire to help others, even strangers. They also highlight the human truth of our Unitarian Universalist principle respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. In organ and tissue transplantation, great scientific and technological advances serve to remind us of our essential connectedness to all people and to all life. Remember that football stadium I described earlier filled with people? Imagine now an empty stadium, no one in the seats as far as the eye can see. That's the ultimate goal. It's a long way off, but there's an old Jewish proverb that says, if you save just one life, it is as if you have saved the entire world. And so my former colleagues keep showing up for work and asking people like all of you to consider your decision to become an organ donor. I was a paramedic for many years before I became a minister, and I know I've done some heroic things in my life. It's possible that I did those things because I was younger and dumber than I am now, but still I know they were heroic. Each of you, regardless of age, has a chance to do something heroic also, simply by making a decision to become a donor. Earlier I told you about a conference that my organization hosted for nurses a way back when I was first hired in 2005. Near the end of the day, we were all tired and we could see that most participants were ready for the long day to be over. After our final speaker was finished, a very unassuming woman walked to the podium. Her name was Betsy Sellers and she was a second grade teacher. Years before, she'd given birth to a son named Dylan. She told us the story of how her son was born, how beautiful he looked, how much promise he had. And then all of that, she said, was shattered by the news that her son had a congenital heart defect. She had wondered why his skin always seemed cold and why he never seemed to pink up like the other babies did. Adding to the horrible stress of that time in her life, her husband was an officer in the Marine Corps stationed overseas, and she had two other young boys at home. As her story unfolded, she told us of how local news stations and finally even Good Morning America caught wind of her story and the long wait she was having to endure to find a heart for her infant son. Donated hearts like that are extremely rare and Dylan's condition was deteriorating rapidly. At least three times she was called by the hospital and told to have her priest say last rites as Dylan was about to die. Her eyes filled with tears easily as she remembered this difficult time, and as if to escape having to endure the pain again, 
She invited us to watch a brief clip of the Good Morning America story, which had aired when all of this had happened. After the brief clip, which included CBS doing interviews with her husband overseas, Mrs. Sellers wanted to thank all the healthcare workers present for all they did to help her and her ailing infant son during that terrible time. Not every story has a happy ending, she said, and we were all her heroes for the important work we did. I was struck by her use of the word hero, just like our firefighter during lunch called us heroes. She used it several times, and again I thought of the interdependent web of heroes that makes this important work possible. And I gave thanks for our interdependent web of healthcare professionals that had been there for this temporarily single mother and grade school teacher when she needed us most. It made me feel like this work I do is the most important work I've ever done as a minister or as a paramedic or even as a person. The last thing that Betsy said before she left the podium was, you are all my heroes, but there is one more hero that I'd like you to meet. And then the side door to the hall opened and the lights came up and into the room ran a healthy, happy little boy. Of course, we all immediately knew it was Dylan and there wasn't a dry eye in the house. He had received his heart after all in a successful surgery that could be repeated many more times around this country if we just had more people willing to be heroes, willing to be organ donors. As we all, cheer, as we all cheered on little Dylan Sellers, I thought I heard a voice, an internal prayer perhaps. Maybe the voice was coming from that packed football stadium, the voice of all those on the waiting list. Maybe the voice was whispering to me from a much farther place, the voices of those who lost their battle while they waited for a transplant that never came. Through my own tears, the voice I heard whispered simply, if you save just one life, Don, it is as if you have saved the entire world. Loving spirit, may we know once again that we are not isolated beings, but connected in mystery and miracle to the universe, to this community, and to each other. In your many holy names we pray. Amen. I'll be right back. You're listening to Zoo Taxi on the Anchor Podcast Network. Welcome back to the show. I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed that sermon. So uh, if you've been following us for a bit, you know that we always end our broadcasts by reading some poetry. And that's because uh, I'm a big fan of poems and, uh, and poets. I like to read and write them and I feel like it should be supported. And, and I picked an interesting one to read today. Uh, um, it's interesting because it's June 5th, 2020, and we're in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic, we're starting to open things up right now. And of course, that's leading to an increase in cases, which everybody could predict. But the other thing that's going on is that we're in about our seventh or eighth day, maybe ninth day of, uh, of protests 
some with uh, some looting and violence uh, involved, but mostly peaceful protests around the country following the murder of a black man by a police officer, which of course happens with some regularity in a country that is filled with institutional and systemic racism. So these protests have been going on uh, in support of the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement. Um, the poem is called The Blizzard, and it's by Phyllis Levin. Now that the worst is over, they predict something messy and difficult, though not life-threatening. Clearly, we needed to stock up on water and candles, making terrines of soup and things that keep when electricity fails and phone lines fail. Igloos rise on air conditioners, gargoyles fly and icicles shatter. Frozen runways, lines and markets and paralyzed avenues verify every fear. But there is warmth in this sudden desire to sleep, to surrender to our common condition. With joy watching hours of news devoted to weather, people finally stopped to talk to each other. The neighbors we didn't know were always here. Today, they're ready for business, armed with a new vocabulary, casting their saga in phrases as severe as last night's snow, damage assessment, evacuation, emergency management. The shift of the wind matters again, and we are so simple, so happy to hear the scrape of a shovel next door. So that's our show for today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at anchor.fm slash zootaxi, where you can make a contribution to help the show or leave me an audio comment to play on the air. I'm also searchable on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I tend to use social media as a blog as well as a forum to share my photography, which I hope you'll enjoy. Till next time, I'm Don Stouter, and this is Zoo Taxi, hosted by the Anchor Podcast Network. Be kind, be generous, forgive everyone, and love your neighbor. No exceptions. Mm -hmm.